The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We've got a really fun guest today whose book is gorgeous, well-written, and probably the most practical how-to guide for anyone who's interested in creating and not just a healthy, but a functional and very educational learning space in the schoolyards around our nation's schools. Her name is Sharon Danks, and the name of the book is Asphalt to Ecosystems, Design Ideas for Schoolyard Transformation. And even if you just looked at the pictures alone in her book, you'd be fascinated. But but reading it as well has just been a great joy of mine on the past couple of weeks. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Sharon. I'm glad that you could be with us. Thanks so much for inviting me to speak with you today, Jill. I'm so happy to be here. Well, for our listeners who might want to take a look at your website and follow along as we're talking with you, I want to give them the opportunity to do that. Don't close this tab in your web browser, folks. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But if you want to check out the website that goes along with Sharon's book, go to www.asphalt, the number two, ecosystems, and that is plural, .org. And you can check it out while we talk to Sharon. You know, Sharon, before we dive into a discussion on ecological schoolyards, I'd love for you to explain to our listeners uh, about your educational background and some of your interests that helped shape your work in this field. Sure. Um, I'd say I grew up in a household in the Chicago area that always had gardens and that valued being outside in nature as part of our everyday experience. Um, after college, I knew I wanted to work in the field of environmental education, and I also had strong interest in international studies and architecture. Um, my first real job in the 90s was with a nonprofit called Concern Incorporated that was working on urban sustainability issues, and I was hooked. And I followed that <laughs> with graduate school in city planning and landscape architecture at UC Berkeley. Um, and after starting graduate school 15 years ago, I became interested in the field of ecological design and the problem about of how to create more ecologically sound cities. I think that's a problem that's going to be increasingly important in the future. Mm-hmm. And I realized that in order to start addressing that, we need to have citizens who value the ecological systems that they depend on. And to do that, they need to understand them. And that's where education comes in. Mm-hmm. I started uh, studying the school garden movement, which was just beginning at that time, and branched out to look at what else schools were starting to address in terms of things like rainwater systems and composting and wildlife habitats and energy systems. And I'd say I was also strongly influenced during graduate school by uh, professors, uh, Randy Hester and Marsha McNally, who were teaching about the field of participatory design, how to get uh, citizens involved in planning the future of the places that they share. Mm. Um, And John Miles' work at Cal Cal Poly Pomona also really caught my eye in terms of... um, 
his work on the Center for Regenerative Studies there, where university classes use their building's campus as an outdoor learning environment for studying things like food production, energy conservation and production, water systems, waste reduction, things like that. Um, and the students there have hands-on access to it at the university level. It was one of the first ones around. And I decided to use that, uh, that idea as the basis of my master's thesis to explore and address what this type of campus-based outdoor learning would look like if implemented at K-12 schools, which wasn't really being done in a comprehensive way 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I visited about 30 schools in the Western United States as part of my master's degree thesis um, and saw some fabulous things going on. Um, and I was also later given the opportunity to follow this up and explore it more broadly um, with a traveling fellowship that UC Berkeley had generously given me to, to go on after I finished graduate school. And I had the chance to go to Canada and England and Sweden and Denmark and Norway to see examples of school ground projects in action. And I really saw a lot of inspiring projects and met some wonderful people who were leaders, leaders in this field, and they generously um, shared their experience with me. So I returned to the U.S. Um, really fired up to bring more of this here. And I've... Sorry? Go right ahead. Go right ahead. I've continued, um, continued this travel on my own in recent years, going back to England and Germany and Japan. Um, and I'd say I've probably visited about 250 schools now over the course of 10 years or so in, in uh, eight countries. And I used that experience to write the book and also... Um, participated in the founding of the San Francisco Green Schoolyard Alliance um, in our region, and I'm on their board. And I have a, a design firm in Berkeley, California, called Baytree Design, and we, mm-hmm. um, I, I founded with uh, landscape architect Lisa Howard. And over the last five years or so, Lisa and I have been fortunate to work with about three dozen schools in the San Francisco Bay Area and elsewhere to help them rethink their grounds and plan their development in a way that brings their curriculum outside uh, diversifies what they offer in terms of recreation and improves the ecology of the school grounds in a way that children can understand and participate in. Mm-hmm. Well, and and you document that so well in the book. It's it's great to see all the different ways that schools sort of make this concept their own. You know, sometimes I. I I'm accused of being too California-centric with my guests when it comes to Go Green Radio. But you all heard Sharon say she's originally from Chicago, and many of our listeners know that I'm originally from Illinois as well. So, see, a lot of great things come out of the Midwest too, folks. So uh, I knew there was something else besides this school gardens that thing that I liked about you, Sharon. So uh, <laughs> that's awesome. You know, in looking, again, just at the pictures uh, of the various schoolyards that you documented in your book, you know, there were a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences. Um, So tell us how exactly it is that you define what an ecological schoolyard is. How would we know it if we saw it? Well, I'd say first, um, you've probably heard of them before. They go by many different names. Um, You can call them ecological schoolyards, green schoolyards, sustainable schoolyards, biotopes, and sometimes people say school gardens, and what they mean is something broader than just agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I usually find myself explaining this topic using photographs and slideshows, which is clearly difficult on the radio. Um, <laughs> so I was wondering um, if I could instead read your listeners a paragraph from my book where I paint a picture of ecological schoolyards with words. By all means. And then I can talk about it in a little more detail. Sure. Okay, so from, from page one, here's a paragraph. 
Imagine a schoolyard where children work on their lessons in an outdoor classroom, study rainfall patterns as water flows into their cistern, track renewable energy as it's produced by their wind turbine, and examine the local geology found in the comfortable stone amphitheater. Native plants around the schoolyard bring birds and butterflies to enrich and enliven their studies, and edible plantings offer tasty snacks to eager young foragers. A stunning mosaic made from recycled tiles brightens the edge of a garden where children are busy harvesting delicious raspberries. In addition to ball games and climbing structures, children play among plants in bloom, relax while nestled in shady nooks, look for small creatures in the garden, and make up creative games to play with their friends in a fort they built themselves. Does this sound like your neighborhood school? If not, it could. It sounds wonderful. And I'm sure that every parent who's listening, even teachers uh, who may or may not be parents, but teach at that, that level, that age of, of child, would agree that that's a... It's an idyllic situation for kids to have at school. As many of us know, children spend most of their waking hours at school, um, especially you know during the school year, maybe not so much in the summer, but um, that kind of a learning space, an outdoor learning space is so appealing, You know, not just exactly. because of what it offers, but it also offers an alternative to something that a lot of people are becoming more and more aware of, and that is uh, problems that some schools have with indoor air quality and the fact that you know, sometimes that air quality can be two to five times more toxic than outdoor air quality. Um, the idea of being able to get children outdoors as much as possible is incredibly appealing as well. Definitely. And, and I, think, I think that shows also how many different topics that come up in modern society kind of converge um, on school grounds and in uh, the topic of ecological schoolyards. And that, that's just one of them where coming, out, like, coming outside addresses that health concern. Um, it also is a place to um, address obesity issues, which is a, a, a big problem these days, getting children to move around more outside as well as eat healthy foods that they can raise in their garden. Um, ecological schoolyards are, are great educational laboratories of, that can be used to take kids on field trips uh, for firsthand experiences without even leaving their schoolyard. Mm-hmm. And again, not just for science, but to explore almost anything that's usually taught inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a really key thing, too, is that they're well, well-rounded social environments for kids of all ages. They, have many, they present many more things for children to do. And so for, for younger children in particular, preschool and elementary, they, they provide a variety that's wide enough so that children won't get bored while they're playing. So they're less likely to um, engage in bullying behavior when they have things to do. Um, and they, they also... Uh, also include traditional sports games and things like that. So we're not talking about eliminating um, well-loved pastimes of of regular sports and and play structure. We're just talking about adding on mixes of other things that, that provide a range of opportunities for education and recreation. Um, right. I mean, there's still a place for wall ball, but uh, and the slides and the monkey bars. But uh, having some variety outside of those options is also a great thing. I'm wondering, you know, as you've gone around to these 250 some odd schools and observed ecological schoolyards, what teachers say? I mean, after all, it's not just the school for the kids, but it's also the workplace for the teachers. How does this kind of a schoolyard improve the workplace for the adults on campus? Sure, it's definitely a, a key factor. Um, they allow for more creative, interesting lessons. Uh, they have provide resources right outside that, that teachers can take their students to see. Um, and when, when we work with schools, we ask them what they're already teaching that they'd like to be able to teach outside. So those resources are 
embedded in the landscape. So, for example, if they're working on geology curriculum and might be studying small handheld rock samples in their science lab, they could also be very well served by a series of putting a series of boulders into the schoolyard so they can take students out and observe large samples of rock. And during the rest of the school year, those rocks might be a seeding circle or they might be part of an amphitheater or just points of interest in the schoolyard. But adding in these multi-use items um, is very good for the curriculum. And I'd say um, and it's also specific to the curriculum that's taught at, at that school. It's about designing things for, for particular curriculum. Um, and it, green schoolyards and the way that they're um, created with participatory design means also that teachers have a voice in the way that their school grounds look and the way that they're managed and what they contain. So it's about empowering teachers as well. Mm-hmm. And I'd say um, it helps them to weave together different topics that they teach, things like we were talking about from public health and obesity issues to uh, ways to get parents involved in the school. So often you can hook parents on, on getting really excited to come and, and help you um, with with building the school grounds, and then they they find that they're more involved in the school in general and their children's education, which helps um, the teachers teach. Um, Absolutely. And and creating positive social environments, again, makes it easier for children to um, pay attention to the teachers during their lessons. Well, sure, and having that multi-generational presence on campus, I think, is a great thing. It it mirrors the community at large, and um, I think that's a great aspect uh, that having parents engage in schools uh, has as well. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio and much more to talk about when it comes to ecological schoolyards with Sharon Danks in just a moment, so don't go away. We'll be back right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Two views. Different topics. Questions. Answers. News. And advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, our guest today is Sharon Danks. She is the author of a book I really enjoyed reading. It's a beautiful book with gorgeous photos, but it's also intensely practical. It's called Asphalt to Ecosystems, Design Ideas for Schoolyard Transformation. And I have some exciting news from her publisher. Her book is now in the second edition, second printing, and they're offering a discount for for Go Green Radio listeners. So here's how you can get that. Don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep it open. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com, but open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.newvillagepress.net and you can get a 10% discount on the book by entering the code GOGREEN. You get a 10% discount off of the already discounted web price. So that's kind of a benefit. You know, we were talking before the break about some of the great benefits to students and teachers um, when you institute an ecological schoolyard at a school. And now, Sharon, I'd love for you to talk about some of the many ways that teachers are able to integrate curriculum into their school's ecological schoolyard. Sure, I'd be happy to tell you more about that. Um, I think that when people think about green schoolyards, the first thing that comes to mind is probably science curriculum. So I think I'll tell you about that last. <laughs> there are so many <laughs> other fabulous hanging. things um, that schools can do with their yards. And I'd say um, you know, things like language and literature studies. When you're talking about young children, it's, it's some pretty simple things like alphabet studies, painting the alphabet on the ground or putting it on the walls or finding ways for them to play with it outside, rearranging letters, um, having story circles, places for reading outside, foreign language studies. Um, some schools that are teaching multiple languages have all their signage outside and their gardens or around their school in multiple languages. Um, or they, they give their students creative writing out assignments while sitting outside using the outdoor classroom spaces as inspiration for the writing. Um, I've seen schools do poetry displays, putting students' poetry into murals um, and into art pieces. There's one school at um, in San Francisco, Tule Elk Park Child Development Center, that has a gorgeous piece that was done by the children with the help of a local artist that, that has the history of the written word as the subject of a ceramic mural. So um, can really take, take those types of literature and language studies and embed them in the grounds and make it uh, easy to teach that. Art is also one that's, that's fabulous to do. Um, visual art, schools can take all those messy art projects that, that uh, they worry <laughs> about slightly in their classrooms outside and be as messy as they like. Um, have outdoor art studio space, and you can do that in a really simple way by just taking straw bales outside as chairs, or you can build more permanent and fancy uh, outdoor art studio spaces. But easels and straw bales are a great way to start. Um, and you can install children's artwork on the buildings themselves as murals or can create ephemeral art pieces that are just there for a week or a season. Um, there's one school that I visited in England that hangs children's artwork from the trees as mobiles, temporary mobiles. Um, you can also 
work on musical studies, musical instruments, either formal um, productions of, of children playing together as small orchestras, or they could be just instruments to experiment with outside, things that ideally are not um, extremely noisy if they're permanently installed so they don't bother the classes, but uh, allow children to explore sound performance spaces for music and dance and theater. And I also saw some really exciting um, history and social studies projects um, that reinforce what's going on inside the classroom. Um, for example, when I visited a school in Norway, they had what looked like a teepee, a uh, temporary house, built in their, um, on, their, on their lawn. It's called a lavo, it was, and it is something that they were, they were studying the um, native Sami culture from northern Norway, and they used it as an outdoor classroom while they were studying um, about the indigenous Sami. Um, other schools might use murals to celebrate specific moments in history that they're learning about or local and world leaders. There's a wonderful tile mosaic mural, for example, um, that students made with a local artist in San Francisco um, at Bret Hart School that celebrates the school's annual tradition of holding a peace march in honor of Martin Luther King. And it, it depicts the students participating in the march. Um, my, my own child is came home from school one day telling me about a fantastic curriculum that she participated in. Um, she goes uh, to the Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley King School. And they were studying Mesopotamia and things important to the time period. And they had a set of lessons in the garden where they went outside to learn how to make mud bricks in a traditional way. And they're going to be installing those as a bench in the garden. They tried their hand at creating their own small irrigation channels to understand the agriculture of the era. And they explored fruit trees that were growing in the region at that time that happened to be in their garden. And this was a lesson that came home and was explained at the dinner table to our family in great detail. It showed how much it captured her imagination. Um, it seems like much more than she would have gotten out of a lesson from a book. Um, sure. I mean, how could you possibly make, you know, mud bricks an interesting topic out of a textbook? I mean, <laughs> you know, actually doing it with your hands, that, that's phenomenal. Yeah, it was, it was really exciting to hear about. And, and I also see a lot of schools that are doing great things with geography um, and mapping. And it's, it's, you know, if you're a child trying to understand your place in the world, uh, it's quite an interesting thing to see a map of the world with a star maybe of your location and then zoom in and another map of, of your country or your state or your city or your neighborhood and kind of talk about sense of place and understand mapping and compass directions and things. Um, some schools talk about the passage of time with their students by putting in sundials that use shadows to point to the time of day or different types of shadow calendars that um, show the day of the year. And sometimes they've got human sundials where the child's shadow casts the time on the ground for uh, a sundial. Mm -hmm. They also talk about seasonal change by um, putting in plants that flower or fruit or lose their leaves to show, to really emphasize these seasonal change, particularly in urban environments where it might not be as obvious as suburban and rural. Mm -hmm. um, things like tree rings and sedimentary rock also show the passage of longer periods of time. Those are nice things to have in a time garden. Sure. Math comes into school grounds in uh, the form of number grids and lines, but also in lessons that bring kids outside to measure or estimate, multiply, for example, figuring out how many bricks do we need to build a new path we want to make um, mm -hmm. in the garden, measuring and estimating and counting and figuring out the area. Um, and then into the science studies, uh, which is certainly rich and deep and involves all the ecological systems we've talked about before. Um, but 
simple things like weather measurements, wind and temperature uh, barometers. Uh, astronomy gets brought up sometimes with maps of constellations and also solar system models painted on the ground in, um, in scale for how far planets are apart. They could be small or quite large. Um, plant growth studies, wildlife habitat studies, and I'd say children are involved um, in different ways in creating these, these curriculum pieces in their grounds um, and in, in using them with their teachers. Well, and I think this is really kind of an exciting piece to the whole story of an ecological schoolyard because sometimes, um, you know, in, in my line of work, I, I've talked to teachers about instituting environmental education on campus and they kind of cringe because the notion is, oh boy, more curriculum or more instructional minutes and I'm already struggling just to meet state requirements. But whenever you can offer an opportunity for teachers to integrate existing curriculum and environmental education, um, that becomes much more palatable and respectful of their time and, and oftentimes is the way that a lot of teachers prefer to bring in environmental topics or ecological topics into the classroom rather than having a whole new set of curriculum. And so I think that's a really exciting opportunity that's afforded to teachers who have a schoolyard such as this, don't you think? Exactly. I think this is the case where the environment is the context for learning. But the, right. the subject that the subjects that the teachers teach in their curriculum is is what is taught at the school. These are are simply resources to give teachers to teach what they're already teaching in a way that's more hands on, allows them to be creative, and really engages students. Mm-hmm. You know, in the foreword of your book, I was really interested in in a comment that Cam Collier described, and um, it, it was basically that ecological schoolyards are a marriage of agriculture and academics. And I'd love for you to spend a couple minutes talking about this concept with our listeners and maybe what you foresee, if you look in your crystal ball, so to speak, mm-hmm. as the upshot of having children grow up with this kind of experience in their schoolyards. Um, just addressing the first part of that question first, um, I agree with Cam uh, that school gardens and academics are a good combination on school grounds. And I know that we both see school grounds as opportunities for rich, diverse academic and social experiences of all different kinds. Um, and I think schoolyard agriculture is just one piece of what we each see as a larger picture that involves helping children to grow up surrounded by nature and the freedom to explore the world. And having experiences like that help to engage children in their surroundings and root them with a sense of place and helps to shape their outlook and their identity. Um, rather than using agriculture as the foundation for this thinking, I, I prefer the wider concept of schoolyard as the model, kind of in miniature, of healthy cities um, in harmony with the natural world. So what we're trying to model is is how how we as people and our communities coexist with the nature that's around us. And mm-hmm. so putting these systems on site in miniature allows students to explore that and understand how um, ecological systems work. And I think that children who grow up with an understanding of and, and love for the natural world will want to see it protected and nurtured in the future. I hope uh, that many of them will become stewards of their communities from social and ecological perspectives as well as being engaged citizens. And I think when, when people participate in creating green schoolyards, whether they're children or adults, they're often empowered by it. And part of it is a sense of accomplishment and, and community engagement that comes from participating in a barn-raising style project. We don't really have 
too many types of, of those opportunities anymore. Um, it's gratifying to be part of a design process to see what's working well, what's not working so well with a particular place, and then crafting a solution to address the issue and working together to make it happen. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I can't help but think that children who do have some agriculture or agricultural aspect to their schoolyard, you know, when they plant a seed, see uh, something that they can eat grow out of the ground and they wash it off and they eat it, uh, that they won't get a sense of wonder um, in terms of, you know, when they go into the grocery store wondering if, the produce that came out of the ground that they're buying at the grocery store was cared for and nurtured and kept as clean and um, organic, um, perhaps, as what they saw in their school garden. I, mm-hmm. I just, I, I think that's a really positive aspect to all of this. Oh, definitely. We've got to take a quick uh, commercial break, but when we come back, we have much, much more with Sharon and this beautiful book, Asphalt to Ecosystems. And while we're on break, check it out at www.asphalt the number two, Ecosystems, um, and and you can see it's .org. You can see her book. You can see more about her. And we'll be back with more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just tuning in, 
We are talking with Sharon Danks, and she is the author of a book called Asphalt to Ecosystems, and it's all about designing ecological schoolyards for schools. It's um, a beautiful book. The photographs alone are worth the read, but the way that she writes the book is so practical. Um, if you have a long list of questions about how do I do this at my kid's school, she answers every single one in a very logical way. I highly recommend that this is a book on every uh, shelf of every school. And actually, right now, if you order it very soon, you can get a 10% discount off the the web price um, if you go to her publisher's website at www.newvillagepress.net and enter the code GOGREEN, you can get a 10% discount off of the book, and I highly recommend you check that out. You can also find out more about the discount on their Facebook page, and um, you can find that. You can link to that by going to Sharon's uh, website, which is asphalt, the number two, ecosystems.org. Well, Sharon, um, you know, I have been the founder and CEO of an environmental education program for the past 10 years called the Go Green Initiative. And many of our listeners know this. Many of them have visited our website, which is www.gogreeninitiative.org. And I've seen a lot of school gardens flourish and fade based on the volunteer base that they needed to sustain them. Uh, years ago, when the economy was a little bit better, schools had a little bit more of an influx of par- uh, parent volunteers. But since the economy's taken a turn, a lot of those same stay-home parents have entered the workforce at least part-time trying to earn some extra money. And sometimes that has given them a lot less time to be on campus. And I know from my own experience, because my kids are older than yours, um, that once kids get into middle and high school, a lot of parents don't always feel as welcome volunteering at school. Um, I have a middle schooler, and she's like, seriously, Mom, you're here again. Stop stalking me. Um, and so I want you to talk about this idea of participatory design and how that particular model can help an ecological schoolyard sustain success, not just, you know, get it started and, oh, that's great, it's brand new, but actually sus- sustain the success of the schoolyard. Well, I think participation is absolutely key to the initial and to the long-term success of, of green schoolyard projects of all types. And the lack of widespread participation is often the reason that school garden projects fail. I, I completely agree with you, and I'm so glad you asked this question, Jill. Um, in general, I like to reframe the word maintenance um, in terms of these projects as stewardship, mm, concept of nice. stewardship, and to use this shift to place value on being stewards of the place, places that we live and work and play and teaching the idea of stewardship to children. Um, and before I address this specifically about the design process, let me step back a bit and tell you that someone, as someone trained in the field of city planning, seems to me that, that many school grounds in the United States have fallen into the realm of what I think of as abandoned public places. Mm. As a society, uh, I think we've given our, our public school districts vast amounts of land and then slowly stripped away their budgets, and with that, their ability to care for spaces in, in meaningful ways. So over the last 50 years or so, uh, more and more of the land has been paved, particularly in cities, so, so it's easier to take care, take care of. Um, that's mm-hmm. been the excuse in many cases. Uh, or converted into wide swaths of empty lawn, which is also pretty easy to take care of and cheap to maintain. This is not the school district's fault. Um, they're doing their best uh, with 
the resources that we, their communities, have given them. Um, but seeing as school grounds are our children's primary place to explore the world, since we as parents often don't let them roam miles from home very often anymore, as children in previous generations were allowed to do, um, I think we need to be providing children with, with places that are so much more engaging than what we have, um, so that they do have places to to explore and challenges to find and, and those crucial childhood experiences that other generations got by wandering their cities. Um, so I don't think the answer is to ask cash-strapped school districts to suddenly take on more responsibility to maintain the grounds. I think a much better and more budget-conscious solution is to have neighborhoods and school communities step up and reclaim the management of the public spaces that they share. And some of this could be by funding the facilities departments more substantially. Um, but at its heart, to me, it's more about community engagement and active stewardship. Um, and this is something that adults can help model for the kids and that the children can participate in actively in their own way at any age. And this philosophy, I'd say, goes, goes hand-in-hand with participatory design. So at Baytree Design, uh, my firm, we believe that community participation is central to the success of these projects, and we weave it into our approach for working with schools from the beginning to the end. Our projects start with um, a school-wide visioning process where we use slideshows to show school communities what's possible. And, they're, and, and while they're watching these, they're comparing and contrasting with what they have outside, which is generally pavement from edge to edge or, or some plain lawn. Um, and this leads to brainstorming sessions with parents and teachers and school staff and kids to generate the kind of ideas that they think are appropriate for their particular school and the things that they'd like to be able to do outside with their grounds from a, a recreation or a play or an ecological perspective. And they vote on the ideas in a process that allows um, the most well-supported ideas to rise to the top of the agenda in a pretty democratic way. And um, so it's also a good model of civic engagement in that sense. And they participate in design workshops to express their ideas uh, for the space. Um, and this process means that the school year designs that come out of it are specific to each school's own curriculum and their location and their culture and their teaching styles, and they capture children's perspectives on, on how they'd like to play. They reflect local eco ecology that surrounds the school and the neighborhood, and the ideas that emerge are, are then and rise to the top are well supported by um, by the school communities that created them, and so they feel this really key sense of ownership for them that later translates into their desire to help build and plant and maintain what they created. So there's the link uh, in that stewardship, mm -hmm. um, the sense of ownership. So we advise schools um, that schoolyards should never be finished. Mm -hmm. They're very different That's from, interesting. from yeah. parks in that sense. Um, you know, with a park, you would go in and you would design it and you build it and you walk away and then people play there. But with schoolyards, you have school communities that are always in flux. There's always a new crop of kids coming in in September and one going out in June. And, you know, as they grow up and move out of the school, they take their parents with them after a while. And mm -hmm. their, their staff members' um, careers change over time. And so if you're trying to maintain this sense of ownership, you need to constantly um, be adding and changing to this, something with the school grounds. So that allows um, everyone who's currently at the school to have it a special connection to it uh, through the things that they build and plant. So the only projects I've ever visited that were more than 20 years old and still growing strong, whether they're gardens or, or full green schoolyards, were the ones that never stopped building and planting and tinkering. Mm -hmm. And because um, really green schoolyards are living systems, and uh, I think they need to be thought of as flexible 
set up in ways that are flexible enough to change over time as the community's needs shift and their interests change. Um, and so if they add things little by little every year, then they, that, that's what um, it allows the, the project to shift as they change. So. You know, I, I love that idea. And in my own experience, I can remember back um, when my children were in elementary school, there was a point at which it was actually it was 10 years ago, the same year that we started the Go Green initiative, when their elementary school was being bulldozed and they had moved all the kids into portables right next to that you know, original school campus and the kids were in portables for a couple of years while they were watching their school be bulldozed and a new school was being constructed. And I mean, you can't imagine the tears that were shed, um, especially more by grown-ups than the kids when those bulldozers came in. But before that happened, we had a few weekends as parents to go in and scavenge through anything we could take from the old school. Mm-hmm. And even just some old pieces of wood uh, from different classrooms and things like that. And the kids painted those, made murals out of them, and we considered mm. those kind of our little altars, you know, in memory of the previous campus that, you know, we had we had all loved. But after time, after about six years, when no child on that campus was on campus at the time that the original school was bulldozed, it just didn't make any sense anymore. Nobody knew why these cruddy old pieces of wood, you know, that were painted up by the kids were meaningful. And so it was time to redecorate. It was time to move on. And um, so I think that's really important what you said about keeping it fresh and keeping it relevant to the current population of the school. I like that idea. Thanks. And so what we do to facilitate that is we try to help schools set up um, in our design projects, we try to set up a, a permanent infrastructure of, say, pathways and landforms, hills, and things like that, irrigation systems that aren't going to change. Things that, that cost a fair amount of money are going to be permanent. But then what happens between those areas, um, the purpose of, like, one space might be an edible garden for 10 years, and then someone decides they'd rather have a habitat garden in that place. That's That's easy to shift. Mm-hmm. Um, we also encourage schools to build things out of natural materials from a from an ecological perspective, but they, as we know, natural materials break down in about five years or more, depending on the material. Which, because schools have a finite amount of space, is perfect for the idea of renewal and refreshing of the ground. Mm-hmm. So, if you put in a wine barrel, for example, and it breaks down, then you can put a different planter in. And yes, it does cost a little bit of money to replace what you had, but what you gain is a sense of ownership and um, community stewardship that results from putting in something new. Absolutely. No question about that. And I'd say, to answer your question a bit about the middle and high schoolers, and I, granted I don't have quite as much experience there as a firsthand because I'm, I'm a first-time middle school parent this year, um, but I have to say mm-hmm. I, I feel pretty welcome to participate at, at her school. Um, so I think it might, it could be school culture, but but I also, you know, I'm sure she and other children of other ages are not as keen to have their parents participate at some <laughs> point. But that is, that's the time when they can particularly participate well on their own. Mm-hmm. And so I think in, when you work with older schools, those projects are more and more about what the children as the community of the school want to see on their site. And it's the, the children, the students, who identify the problems they see, the things that are working well and not, um, the solutions that they would like to create, and then they can follow them through from beginning to end. And so that's a very empowering um, process to set up with older children. And, and I've seen it, um, mm-hmm. seen examples of that in, in some places that I visited where students in um, 
in uh, Petaluma, California, created, restored a creek in their neighborhood, built a salmon or a steelhead hatchery on their school grounds at um, Casa Grande High School, and they are the managers of that ecological system as students. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I think it's definitely appropriate for the older kids to take, you know, a, a lot more leadership in in those matters. We'll talk a little bit more about how these school gardens and school uh, schoolyards of an ecological design need to evolve in order to meet the needs of older students after the commercial break. But we've got to take a quick break, so folks, don't go away. We've got more with Sharon Danks right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and is the co-founder of BR Public Relations, who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to The Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you could join us. I'm so glad that our guest today could join us. She's just a wealth of information. Her name is Sharon Danks, and she's the author of Asphalt to Ecosystems, Design Ideas That Can Transform Your Child's Schoolyard into Something So Much More, a a learning space all of its own. If you're interested in checking out more about Sharon and her book, be sure to visit her website, which is www.asphalt, the number two, ecosystems.org. Sharon, before the break, we were talking about some of the differences between um, schoolyards that would be appropriate 
for elementary, middle, and high school. But I'd like for you to talk a bit more about that. I mean, some of the pictures and some of the descriptions of schoolyards that are in your book, um, you know, they show a lot of younger kids. And uh, no doubt, those of us who remember those days of preschool and elementary school, um, we get excited to have our kids have a, have a garden like that. But when you talk about the way that middle schoolers uh, interact with one another and high schoolers interact with one another, um, on their school property, it's very different. There's not recess. Um, PE is different. Um, they just have a different set of time and space when it comes to being on their school grounds. How should an ecological schoolyard evolve to meet those special needs of middle and high school students? Sure, I think that's an important uh, question to talk about. Um, at the elementary level and, and the preschool level, you, you generally have um, one teacher in charge of the children's day, uh, so it's easier for them to work it into their schedule to bring children outside and to integrate across the different lines of, of different subjects, and they have a lot of play elements that can be added. So I think that's what you're seeing in some of those pictures. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely, middle and high schoolers are, are really capable uh, and interested in diving in with their new skills in tackling real problems, and, and I'm sure that many of them say, why do we need to know this when they read from a book? But when they are, are tasked with um, identifying issues in their own school or community and then creating the, the um, figuring out the solution and organizing people to help them and raising funds and building the project and maintaining a project, it's really a gratifying and um, an experience that helps them to grow as individuals. And I think I think that middle and high schoolers need instead of the play spaces that you'd see in in uh, elementary schools, they need more places to gather mm. that are comfortable for small groups. You know, places to sit and be seen if desired, or sit more discreetly and observe um, mm. social things that allow them to make comfortable social choices in in the way that they experience the outdoors. Um, and I think also. Um, there are lots and lots of curriculum-tied outdoor things that they still can be doing, and, and I've seen some wonderful examples. I gave um, the Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley as a, a previous example, and I, I definitely see that my, my daughter's classes come outside in all different subjects to study all types of, of different parts of their curriculum. Um, in San Francisco, the School of the Arts has a, a fantastic, fantastic garden at, on their high school grounds with uh, organic vegetables and fruits and chickens and Examples of natural building with cob, um, like a large adobe structures that students mm-hmm. and community members contributed to, and it, it's a place to install students' artwork as well. And I went back um, to visit in Chicago and, and looked at Highland Park High School, um, and I saw there that that um, students were learning things like brewing biodiesel in their science lab, mm-hmm. and then going outside um, in the outdoor areas. They had a program to rescue and rehabilitate, rehabilitate um, native turtles uh, going on in one of their buildings, courtyards. They were an improved wildlife, um, wildlife organization that was allowed to take these uh, injured animals and nurture them back to health. They had oh, that's wonderful. Butterfly plantings in another location, and the high school students had been given um, the uh, responsibility that they asked for, which was to redesign one of their own social courtyards outside. And so they had um, designed it and taken out the previous paving that had been there and planted and put new paving in on their own. Mm-hmm. So I think I think they really can be agents of, of change there. Um, sure. I do see in some other contexts, like in Norway, the, the play play that we typically associate with elementary school extends through middle school, and they provide 
more challenging play environments for children of older ages with the idea that those kids still need to um, engage physically and keep fit. And I spoke with a, a professor of, of physical education there. His name's Osbjorn Fleming, and he's, he um, has designed 40 or 50 of what he calls jungle playgrounds, for example. Mm. And they involve children swinging on ropes across um, kind of ravines of tires he's made, and, and a, a fair amount of physical challenge. And um, they're unique in that they allow kids to step up their, um, their physical skills by depending on the level of the rope that they pick, and they... They, they have different versions for preschoolers up through middle school. And the idea there is, is social motor play that allows children to negotiate as they're playing. So they're doing a physical activity, swinging on these, on these ropes, and they can crash into each other. They, you know, it's, it's, it involves negotiation. No one gets hurt. It's because it's, it's a learning experience and a growth experience to, um, to meet challenge and to meet it successfully. Everyone likes to, to progress in their, um, so in their physical skills, you know, these are kids that might be out climbing in the mountains on the weekend and they practice their climbing skills at school. <laughs> so That's I think pretty there, cool. there is a way to play at, in older ages, too. You know, there's something I'd love for you to talk to us about because it sounds really exciting, and that's the International School Grounds Alliance. Uh, talk to us about, about that organization. Um, yeah, this is, this is a topic that really excites me. Um, as part of this traveling I did to to do research for this book, I met some fantastic people in, in different countries around the world who were um, helping to promote the school ground movement in their own local area. And some of us uh, got together, um, came up with an idea, I'd say about six or eight years ago, to, to have an international organization that would share these ideas. And um, it's taken a while to put together, but uh, in 2010, we had our first conference in England, um, and run by Learning Through Landscapes. And just this past fall, we, we hosted an international conference here in San Francisco where I was the director of the event. And out of that conference came this new organization. People decided it was, it was a great idea to, to band together and to share research. There's a lot of research going around, on around the world about the value of this from academic and social and um, physical and, and ecological perspectives to share our, our research and knowledge to... Um, encourage each, each other in advocacy uh, within each country. And so um, the, new, the organization is only a few months old, but I'd like to invite people to, to join us on our LinkedIn group, which is uh, International School Grounds Alliance Public Forum, or on the website for that organization, which is greenschoolyards.org. Fantastic. And what do you hope the next year or so will, you know, that, that the group will accomplish? Well, um, we are an organization that um, is about sharing information. So over the next year, there will definitely be discussions on those uh, on that forum I mentioned. Um, we just produced a video together about uh, that talks about the need and of, for this type of work and includes photographs of school grounds around the world, and that will be posted pretty soon on the website. Um, and there will be a follow-up conference in uh, 2013 in Toronto hosted by Evergreen. Um, and there's already been sharing of information. The research, there's a research subgroup that has started to um, collect resources that will end up on the website. The website there includes um, a number of videos already from around the world of, of some of these projects in action and what they look like uh, when children are, are playing at schoolyards in Scotland or Japan or um, in the Middle East. And you know, just different examples of, 
of what we can do. So we're trying to expand um, the breadth and depth of, of what's happening in each place by, by sharing with each other what, what each area is doing. Well, I think that's fantastic, and I thank you so much for being on Go Green Radio, Sharon. I think what you're doing is terrific. For our listeners who didn't catch this before, Sharon's uh, website is www.asphalt2ecosystems.org. It reminds me of you know a, a trip that I was taking about, I don't know, maybe five years ago, touring some different Go Green Initiative Schools, and I was with a friend who was with the National Audubon Society, and uh, he said to me as we looked over asphalt uh, schoolyard after asphalt schoolyard and saw no birds whatsoever, he told me something I'll never forget. He said, you know, if these schoolyards aren't healthy enough for birds to be here, they're not healthy enough for children, and there's something uh, that we need to be doing about that to improve that. And I think that Sharon's book can help schools do exactly that. For a short time, uh, Sharon's publisher is offering a discount to all of our lucky Go Green Radio listeners, and I want you to check that out at www.newvillagepress.com. And by entering the code GOGREEN, when you check out, when you're ordering the book, you can get a 10% discount. So that's a great advantage. I want to thank you, Sharon, for being on Go Green Radio. Thank our listeners for tuning in. And we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Till then, have an awesome week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.